Well, good morning. It's uh, good to be here with you. My name is Kurt Buchanan, and I have the privilege of sharing uh, the word with you this morning. Uh, we're going to hop into uh, our message in just a minute, uh, but we've been, is it five or six weeks now in this particular series, and we'd like to see, for those of you who've been with us, how you're doing in terms of keeping up with what we've been teaching and uh, so we're going to do a bit of a game, a bit of a competition to find out if you can remember a number of different things from the series that we have been doing. Now, if you're joining us online uh, for the first time or if you're here in the building for the first time, you can still play along with us. So we're going to go to kahoot.it on your mobile devices. Maybe you've got the app already or you can just use your web browser on your mobile device and go to kahoot.it. There's going to be a number displayed on the screen it is 7514064. And if you go to kahoot.it and enter that code, 7514064, you can be a part of the game. Okay? I'll give you just a second to tune in. And you can all pick your names, which is going to be super fun. Okay, all right, as you're getting signed in there, let me give you the first question of our Kahoot. Okay, question number one is this. Our current series is Red Triangle, we're in a series, Blue Diamond, The Story, The Yellow Circle, The Believe Series, and The Green Square is The Think Series. Go ahead and enter your best guess or your answer. And we'll find out how many of you are going to get it here in just a moment. Okay, most of you said it was the Believe series, which is correct. Way to go. Okay, uh, let's keep going. Oh, yeah, we have to see the rank. So Expert B, you were in there first, it looks like, with the most points. Way to go. Okay, you were the quickest with the right answer. Here we go. Second, this is a true or false question. So true or false. The writer of Psalm 121 first lifts his eyes up to the towering trees before asking himself, where does my help come from? Is that true or false? He lifts his eyes up to the towering trees. All right, go ahead and enter your answer, and we will find out. All right, so 38 said false, 17 said true. It's not the towering trees, it is up to the mountains. But again, it's not about looking to the mountains. That was common practice to put all of the idols of various gods up on top of the mountains, so no matter where you are in trouble, you could look to them. But this psalmist is saying, I don't look to the mountains even. For my help, my help comes from God. Okay, way to go, expert B. All right, and then we've got wise wallaby, uh, the bronze lemur. Way to go, guys. Okay, here we go. Question three. They're going to get a little more tricky now. So this question, how do I have a relationship with God, is the key question to which key belief? You have salvation, that's the red triangle, blue diamond, personal God, uh, the yellow circle is God, and the green square is the Bible. Okay, go ahead and enter your answers again. How do I have a relationship with God is the key question to which key belief? All right, most of you said salvation, which is correct. Way to go, everybody. A few of you um, are, had other answers, but let's continue. Way to go. Who's in the... Okay, you got expert B again. Oh, no, yellow ferret takes the lead. 
All right, Bronze Lemur's doing very well. Space Chicken, very good. Nimble Crab, and is that Amiable Quail? All right. Okay, let's go to question four. This one's getting a little bit more tricky. The key verse to this statement, I believe the God of the Bible is the only true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is from which reference? Okay, you have red triangle, 1 Corinthians 14, verses 13. The blue diamond, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The yellow circle, 2 Colossians 2, 19. Or the green square, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 14. Go ahead and enter your answers there. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, which is the correct answer. Most people got it. That's great. But a little bit more divided there. Only a few marks ahead on that one compared to the other guesses. Very good. Okay, this is question. Oh, yeah, yellow ferret in the lead. Space chicken, amiable quails moving up. Very good. Rapid dolphin is moving up. That's great. Okay, let's go on. This is question five. This is a fill-in-the-blanks question. Okay, I believe the Bible is inspired, is the inspired word of God that guides my blank and blank. You're looking for two different answers. So you have the red triangle, which is thoughts and intentions, the blue diamond, hopes and dreams, yellow circle, plans and endeavors, and the green square is beliefs and actions. Okay, most of you guessed beliefs and actions, which is Correct. Way to go, everybody. Thanks for participating with us. Now we're going to find the winner in third place. Amiable Quail. Is Amiable Quail in the building or someone joining us online? Oh, here in the building. Very nice. Okay. And now we are going to, um, oh, yeah, number first place, Yellow Ferret. Is Yellow Ferret here? Anybody? Yellow Ferret out there online somewhere? Way to go. Nicely done. Thanks for playing along with us. And uh, glad that you're joining us for this uh, series. We're going to hop into um, this week's uh, topic here. We're talking about identity in Christ. And here is the key question, is who am I? The key idea is, I believe I am significant because of my position as a child of God. And here's the key verse for you, John 1 verse 12 Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Okay, let's dive into this week. When future historians look back on our age in terms of where we are in the world, if they're trying to get their students to understand perhaps the mind of the people from our time, they might describe it as this, the greatest identity crisis in world history. Now this happens uh, on an individual scale, people asking who am I, as well as on a larger sense, uh, perhaps even nations asking the question, who are we? And this actually on the large scale leads to an identity war. Perhaps you've noticed that on the news. See, at other points in history, you had um, moments where the identity crisis was much more stable or firm. There were common expectations and experiences by way more people that would last for decades, sometimes centuries or many centuries. Those expectations came from uh, family or cultural traditions, but also from dominant political structures or religions, resulting in a shared worldview. For better or worse, there was more stability. Our modern world has such a rapid rate of change 
and so many clashing worldviews that we are clamoring for a place to stand in order to establish or understand our identity. If you ask different Canadians, what is a Canadian? You will get very different answers depending on who you ask. And even if you ask an individual about who they are, they are equally as confused and divided about who they are. We try to define ourselves, um, our own identity, by our skills, what we're great at doing, uh, by our personalities, kind of who we are. Maybe we're the life of the party. Maybe we're the stable person, whatever that might be. Uh, By our roles, um, again, father or mother, um, boss, employee, we define ourselves by our roles. Maybe by our family of origin, our ethnicity or our nationality. We define ourselves by gender, political views, our clothes, even music genre. We define ourselves by those things. But none of it really gives us that unshakable, empowered sense of self that allows us to live our lives to the fullest and actually make a difference in the world. And I think part of that comes from this modern notion of freedom, and this, this idea that freedom is when we have no constraints whatsoever, no boundaries, no limitations. But that point of view, I think, in some ways is quite absurd. For example, a fish is truly free when it's in its natural habitat, swimming in water. A fish is not free when it's on the sand flopping around. Um, and I guess, again, it was made for the water or the the water made for the fish, but that's what it's designed for. And that's easy to understand when you think about a fish being in water, but so many people have a hard time understanding how that actually is the same for us. We were designed for a certain environment, and we experienced death when we were outside of it. And again, when we define ourselves by all of those different things, we experience that death. But if there is one true God revealed through uh, creation in general or specifically through the Bible, if he is this personal God who has brought about salvation to us, that salvation from the slavery to sin, as we've discussed so far in our series, if we're made for his presence, designed for relationship with him, then it's no wonder that sometimes we feel like we are flopping on the sand when we try to define ourselves apart from him. We won't be able to dig deep into all of the aspects of identity and how those things can fall short, but let's take a look at a couple. A significant part of our identity often comes from the roles that we play. We play one role at work and another at home. We are one version of ourselves with friends and another with our family. We end up playing so many characters, sometimes we lose sight of who we really are. Even when we are alone, we are many times not ourselves. As a father myself, I sometimes feel like I'm playing the part of the father, asking myself, well, I don't know, what does a good father do? And then I try to be that and do that. I feel the same sometimes as a pastor. I'm trying to think, what does a pastor do? Who is that and how can I become that? Some of you will be familiar with the phrase, fake it till you make it. That's sometimes what we feel like we're doing, right? As parents or as employees or in the various different roles that we're in, in some ways we feel like we're faking it and we don't ever really have the sense that we have made it. And uh, again, other ways that our roles can be um, threatened. Uh, Perhaps you think you're the life of the party 
But what happens when a new friend is added to the group and everybody thinks they're just a little bit more fun than you? Suddenly your identity might be threatened. Or perhaps as a parent, um, maybe you long to be a parent but you're not. And your whole identity is wrapped up in the idea of becoming something that you are not yet. Or even sometimes parents love their kids and wrap their whole identity up in I am being a parent, I'm a mother, I'm a father. But then, because that is their sole identity, they end up smothering their children, their children end up trying to push back and there ends up being strained or disconnected relationships. And again, that role, that identity is threatened. Um, I'm a musician, but quite easily I could lose my motor control to be able to play the drums or the guitar or participate in that way. I could go deaf through an accident or just as I age and not be able to participate in that in the same way. And then am I really a musician? See, life, I think, can threaten all of the roles that we might try to define ourselves in. Now, one character that plays a number of different roles that has always kind of drawn me in is Bruce Wayne, Batman. Not just because he's a superhero and has this amazing car, but because he very consciously plays a role to serve the city of Gotham, or perhaps two roles. I think it was the Christian Bale version of the series where this villain was trying to understand Batman a little bit more. And he was trying to say, which one is the real person? Does Bruce Wayne pretend to be Batman or does Batman pretend to be Bruce Wayne? And I found out a few years ago why I was so fascinated with his nature. I have the same Myers-Briggs personality as Batman. <laughs> See, another way that we identify or we establish our personal our identity is through our personality. I am an INTJ according to the Myers-Briggs type indicator. And it's a rare type. In fact, it might be the most rare of all of the types. But you know lots of people with this personality. And we'll get to that in just a minute. There's a total of 16 types, but INTJ only makes up about 1% of the people. So many INTJs growing up won't meet another INTJ maybe until they're an adult. So sometimes an INTJ kid feels like he can't really identify with other people in the same way. The INTJ is known as the architect because they are always developing complex, comprehensive plans or scheming or coming up with some master plan. An INTJ is a person with uh, introverted, intuitive, thinking, and judging personality traits. These thoughtful tacticians love perfecting the idea. Uh, the details of life, applying creativity and rationality to everything they do. Their inner world is often private, complex. They have a thirst for knowledge, finding a better way. They value truth and depth. This personality type is also full of contradictions. Architects are imaginative, yet decisive, ambitious, and private. They're curious and focused. Now, that paragraph does a good job at making the INTJ sound quite nice, but there's a dark side to every personality as well. Here's a tweet about being an INTJ, which I can identify with. Dracula had it right. Sleep all day, live alone in a castle, and explode into a thousand bats to get out of social situations. 
I also follow a hashtag about uh, the INTJ, and I saw this advice in a meme from a therapist who was trying to help an INTJ. The INTJ. How do I deal with my anger? And the therapist says this. Write letters to the people that are causing you this anger and then burn them. INTJ. Okay, I will, but then what do I do with the letters? (laughs) See, Bruce Wayne, Batman, is also an INTJ. And so is the Joker and the Riddler. Both the hero and the villain have my personality type. There's a few other INTJ pairings like this that you may know of. Hannibal Lecter, played by Anthony Hopkins, and Clary Starling, Jodie Foster, that pair, both INTJs. Sherlock Holmes and Professor Moriarty, even Mycroft, you know, Sherlock's older brother, they're all INTJs, according to those imaginings of those characters. It's one of the most rare types, but it's still very familiar. Actually, because almost every single villain, whenever there's a villain in the movie, is usually either an ENTJ or an INTJ. Here's a list of some of those. So Brainiac, one of the greatest enemies against Superman, Darkseid, Ra's al Ghul, Grodd, Palpatine, Thanos, Magneto, Tywin Lannister, Lord Voltamont, all INTJs. But we're not all evil. Gandalf was an INTJ. Now, again, if you're totally lost in all of those fictional characters, here's a few real people for you. (laughs) Several U.S. presidents are INTJs. Again, only 1% of the population, but a high number of them show up as president in the United States. Um, John F. Kennedy would have been one. Eisenhower, both INTJs. Scientists and philosophers, Isaac Newton, Nikola Tesla, Stephen Hawking, Charles Darwin, Friedrich Nietzsche, theologians, uh, Martin Luther, C.S. Lewis, musicians, Beethoven, Jay-Z, all INTJs. Mark Zuckerberg is an INTJ, one of the most antisocial personality types developed the largest social network just so he could sit back and have everybody get all of their thoughts and feelings out and he could just watch. Elon Musk is trying to get away from everyone by going to space. Now, because he's an INTJ, some of you are thinking that I, if I'm an INTJ, should be a lot smarter than I am based on the people that are in this list. And some of you might be wondering if I'm a hero or a villain. While that remains to be seen, you can be sure I'm always scheming. Now, each of you has a unique personality, and many of those traits often play a part in how we form our sense of identity. Again, the life of the party, the loyal friend, the cynic, the pessimist, the challenger, the optimist. But as much as personality plays into our identity, personality is just a kind of a complex version of the fight, flight, or freeze response in a threat. See, we have these default responses when we're threatened. Some people fight, some flee, others freeze as their default setting. But the reality is that the default response might not be the right solution for the problem in front of us. If your default is to freeze, but the situation calls for fleeing, it might not go well for you. If your default is to flee, but the situation calls for a fight, you might lose out on something. In some situations, 
personalities shine. And in others, they become a liability for us and for everyone else around us. Uh, So we can't define ourselves by the roles that we play or our personalities. See, as much as roles or personalities, the skills we have are gender, family, ethnicity, nationality. See, all of those things are not enough to firmly establish an unshakable, uncompromised, energized, life-conquering sense of identity. The kind that puts to rest the individual identity crisis and brings peace to the identity wars in our world. Now, this morning, for sake of time, we can't unpack all of it, but we're going to look at a specific thing, uh, again, here from Genesis. The Bible has lots to say about identity. We're going to take a look at this new name that Abram gets. So Genesis 17, uh, this is starting in verse 5. God says to Abram, no longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. Biblical names uh, were much more significant to those people perhaps than they are today. Uh, Perhaps you know your name's meeting, perhaps you don't. But if they really were important like they were in the uh, biblical sense, um, you would know your name meeting, your spouses, your kids, your whole family network, your coworkers. You would know all of the name meanings um, because it was significant to understanding who they were. It was an identity thing. So when God meets Abram and changes his name to Abraham, he's going after an identity issue. God multiplies Abraham. Uh, He takes Abram, which means exalted father, and he turns him into the father of many. That yes, he had many um, uh, people, descendants, but also in a spiritual sense through faith, those who put their faith in Christ are like his spiritual descendants. He multiplies Abram. Now, Abram didn't have kids at this point, and he says, not only are you going to be just exalted father, you're going to be this uh, father of many. And so when we surrender our lives to God, he doesn't rip out our personality. He doesn't take away all the roles that we play and give us new ones. Instead, I believe he amplifies and multiplies what is actually already uh, present. Like our personality. Again, they come with strengths and weaknesses, but somehow he's able to take those strengths and multiply them in his kingdom. When we, like the fish, are in the right environment, we become more fully ourselves. It's very difficult to put a type on Jesus. He's always going almost against one of the other sides of types in his nature. Uh, For example, uh, he's always going to be alone and pray. So you might say, well, he must be an introvert. At the same time, he's always surrounded by people, crowds, and in parties. So he must be an extrovert. Um, Again, at the death of Lazarus, Jesus shows up, and there's two sisters who come to him and basically say the exact same thing in regards to the exact same situation, but he responds radically different to both. One, he scolds almost and says, I am the resurrection and the life. And with the other one, he just sits and weeps, all within a matter of moments. See, he's not responding out of his personality and what he wants to do. He's responding to the situation in front of him and doing what is the right thing for those people. See, it's what the situation requires, not just his personality. 
And I believe that God wants to do that with our personalities too, to awake us, to bring us to life in our personalities, but also when I want to be reclusive and stay away and be alone, I need to re-engage with people because that's actually the right thing for me to do. That's better for me than being totally isolated and alone. Again, some of you who are maybe extroverts, you need to actually pause and take time for yourself to maybe be alone and to pray, and that's actually better for you. Again, just giving in to all of your default responses is not necessarily the best thing for us or for the people around us. Here's another thing. Abraham not only had to have this encounter with God where he realizes that God is lifting the ceiling off of what's possible in his life, but he had to embrace it. On his way home from his time of prayer, he had to correct everybody who stopped and said, hey, Abram, he had to say, actually, it's Abraham now. And I think there's something that's so powerful in that. Perhaps you've had some kind of encounter with God, maybe here at church, in a time of worship, or wherever that might be. Maybe you've had an encounter like that where you felt like he was coming near to you and he was lifting something off of you. He was amplifying, multiplying you. He was calling you to something greater and more. But then as you went from that moment into other aspects of it and people started calling you by the name you had been going by, you got stuck there. But Abraham had to embrace it. He had to say, it's Abraham now. In fact, he had to say that to Sarah, his wife. He goes back and sees her and, hey, Abram, actually, it's Abraham now. They didn't even have kids, and now he's announcing that he's going to be the father of many. She had to deal with this new identity, and he had to also say, and by the way, you're going by Sarah now, that there was an identity shift, that what he was doing in the life of that couple was remarkable, and they each had to embrace that idea And I think one more step in the name change idea is this. Not only did he take what was present in Abram, multiply it, make it more for his kingdom's purposes, when we step into a new name, ultimately we are stepping into Christ, the name above all names. And God sees us as he sees Jesus. See, he sets his eternal love on us But because of our sinfulness, we needed to be covered over with a perfect righteousness. And that's what Jesus offers us, that we can have his perfect righteousness. So that when God looks at us, it is like he sees Jesus' perfect record as if it were our own. There's this name change, this identity change that happens for us that we need to embrace Uh, This all kind of takes place, this name change uh, happens in uh, the idea of the context of covenant. Now, covenant might be unfamiliar to you. You might not know exactly what that is. We see that all throughout um, the Old Testament, which actually testament is a very close word to the idea of covenant. We see God approaching people and coming up with these covenants. Now, we might be unfamiliar with covenants, but the people at the time were not unfamiliar with it. When God says first to Abram, okay, we're gonna make a covenant, uh, Abram doesn't say what's a covenant, he just do I need any supplies, what's the procedure? He already knew, and he goes out and he gets the supplies and he comes back, and uh, a covenant would have been understood by those people in a different way. And it was often involving an animal being torn apart. And what it was is it was saying, this is the fate of the person who breaks the covenant. And uh, as God comes, uh, again, this is 
God comes to Abraham when he was 99. The Lord appears and says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and blamelessly. Then I will make my covenant between you, me and you, and, will, and you will greatly increase in your number. Abram fell face down. There's probably a number of reasons why he fell down. But if God said that salvation was only possible for those who are faithful and blameless, then he knew he was out of luck. So am I, and so are you. See, most covenants were binding when both parties followed through on their side of the agreement, knowing that breaking it would lead to terrible consequences. See, again, this animal would be torn apart, and uh, Abram knew he wouldn't be able to live up to it, and that this covenant meant he would be torn apart, or so he thought. And even this, you know, this list of rules, be faithful, be blameless, seems to ever expand throughout the Old Testament. We see more and more rules, it seems, that people, again, are unable to fall, follow. But Paul explains that it was all leading somewhere. That, again, there was this new covenant coming. And in some ways, it is almost the exact same kind of covenant, but there's a surprise. It's that all of the things are actually fulfilled by God himself. You know how in creation when God says, let there be light, there's just light? It's not like he talks about you know, creating light and then he has to go and make it. His word is the power that creates it. His word is the action. And in some sense, in the same way that God said, let there be light and there was light, God spoke to Abram and said, walk faithfully and blamelessly before me. That it's somehow he's going to make it happen. I mean, he says other things too. He says, I will make a covenant between me and you. You will be the father of many nations. Your number will increase. Kings will come from you. I will make you fruitful. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant. See, when you get into the fine print, into the terms and conditions of the covenant, you realize that all of the heavy lifting is on God's side. Abram simply receives it. I think the only way he was able to stand up is as he realizes God's going through these terms. He's fallen face down thinking, I can't do it. I can't be faithful. I can't be blameless. I am not, and I don't know if I can be, but there God is. And I feel like Abram saw a glimpse of the heart of God and saw Christ, God himself, doing all of the heavy lifting, dying in our place so that he could offer us the perfect record that only comes from his righteousness. See, the surprise is that it's not us who gets torn apart. It was Christ on the cross. See, we send this, or we said this a few years ago when we went through a Galatians series. It can be two statements that are very, very close, nearly identical, but just out of order. Put your faith in Jesus and live a godly life and you are saved. Or, Put your faith in Jesus and you are saved to live a godly life. See, and Paul comes along and says, the first one is no gospel at all. But if we put our faith in him, knowing that we can bring none of our own righteousness as if it is any good. See, only when you see you have nothing to offer can you begin to offer anything. 
See, there's this transformation that comes when we realize that he has done it on our behalf and we receive it. And somehow, again, the covenant, when it is split and we're supposed to do something, we've got to keep a long list of things to do and God's gonna do certain things, we can never get there. Our hearts can never be truly transformed, but when it's all on his side, when he says, I am gonna do it, I will make it happen, let there be light, we get to experience this transformation in our hearts. And out of that place, we could begin to live transformed lives. We can have this different identity. More than that, we can have an adoption. We don't just get to come into his kingdom as citizens, though we do. We also get to come in as royalty because we enter in Christ, the Son of God. Our adoption, again, you see this in a number of different places. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith, for you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Again, throwing off all of those different ways that we could be identified. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We get to be heirs, that we get to be royalty, that we get to actually have somehow the same place that Jesus had. We get to have his record, and God sees us as perfect as Jesus is perfect. Again, it says this in John 1, 9 to 13, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Perhaps you're here today or you're joining us online and you've never made that kind of a commitment. Would you pray this prayer with me? Dear Father, thank you that you love me and sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. I put my trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior Help me live a life that honors you by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, when we, be, when we come a part of God's kingdom, we're welcomed in as children, but there's another unique place where it says where we all get to be sons. Now, sometimes we try to impose our cultural perspective on the Bible and where it was written in terms of its cultural perspective. We think that, of course, we're more advanced, we've got more understanding, and we try to put uh, different things into the text that really aren't there. Some people would be offended, well, can't it say sons and daughters? But the radical thing is that it is calling everyone sons in the scripture when you see this. Um, Here's Ephesians chapter one, verse three to seven. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. See, in this world... um, Again, occasionally there would be someone who maybe didn't have children and he would be you know, rich, have lots of wealth and all kinds of land and other things, but he wouldn't have any children of his own to pass on everything that he was, his whole uh, blessing and all of the land and that kind of thing. So he would choose someone and oftentimes this was um, an adult person. He would choose someone 
And he would say, you are going to be my heir. I adopt you. You will be my son. You will be the person that all of my blessing will go to, all of my land, all of the inheritance is going to go to you. And the profound and radical thing is that in the New Testament it says that all of us are like that son who receives the blessing of God. The inheritance of sonship comes to us all, that we are adopted even though, again, we were far from God. We're brought in to that kind of place, that relationship that we are made uh, his child by his decision, his predestination. He chooses us, loves us, adopts us, and gives us the rich inheritance of all that he is. There is a promise like that for each one of us. So we see in this uh, account of Abraham and Sarah, there was a promise given. A child would come. And again, it says this, uh, this is chapter 21. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said. Again, he's delivering on his promises. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time that God had promised him. Again, he becomes named Isaac. We read it earlier. She, Sarah laughs. There's this joy in her old age. Final thoughts on identity. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul says this. He's kind of standing before a bunch of people on trial, and he says this. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. And again, he's defending himself in front of this court, but I think there's something powerful here about identity. In some ways, he says, I don't care what anybody thinks. But he doesn't stop there. He says, I don't even care what I think. I only care what he thinks. When it comes to identity, I think that we can fall into that. We can try to define ourselves or we allow other people to define who we are. And I think, again, all of those things will end up falling short. But instead, when we choose to only be concerned by what he thinks of us, it's radical. We are adopted. We have an inheritance. He will change our name. He will amplify what we are. He will bring us to life in personality, in the roles that we play. We'll become more of the nationality that we are. We'll be able to be more of all of the different things, all the different ways that we might want to define ourselves. He can make us, amplify us into even more like a fish in water when we're designed for a relationship with him. As we wrap up, I'm gonna ask you, to try two different exercises where we just kind of take a moment and pray and ask the Lord to speak to us. Again, in this text, God says to Abram, no longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. It was something different. There was elements of it in the first, but it becomes multiplied in his kingdom. If God was going to speak to you, what do you think he would say of the way that you have been identified, the way that you have tried to define yourself, and the way that he wants to define you? Would you take a moment 
and ask yourself, what is it that you would fill in there? No longer will you be called blank, but your name will be blank. Give yourself a new name. What would God be saying to you if he was giving you a new name? What does he want you to throw off? What's the name that you will no longer be called? Now, I'm not expecting that you're gonna change your driver's license, but what is he saying to you? What is your new name? That's one thing that you can consider in prayer. Here's the other thing. How has the Lord been gracious to you and what promise of his do you need to remember? See, it says this, the Lord was gracious to Sarah and he said, or as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Is there a promise that you need to remember that he has fulfilled, that he will fulfill to you? Identity as a child of God should be the first and foremost way that we understand ourselves. Our identity is in him. Everything else should come second to this. There's this unique thing that happens to Christians because they know that their self-righteousness is nothing to offer, that apart from his grace, we are the worst of the worst. And yet we also know that we are infinitely loved, that God paid the highest price for each of us. Nothing can shake that identity. I'm gonna pray for you in just a moment, but I wanna remind you, uh, tonight we're relaunching Prayer Summit, calling it Prayer Summit 2.0. We're gonna make space for God to move. It's still gonna be a guided prayer experience for anyone, regardless of how experienced you are in prayer. We will gather here in the auditorium to spend time in his presence, to worship, to reflect, to repent, receive healing, practice forgiveness, and listen intently to the Holy Spirit. See, maybe you're not done just yet. Maybe you need to think of or hear from him what that new name is. Perhaps now is that moment for you, or perhaps you can come back tonight and experience him speaking to you about what you need to throw off in terms of your old identity and how you need to step into your new one. Or perhaps you need to be reminded of his promise to you, the ways that he has fulfilled his promise to you and the way that he will. Let me pray for us as we close. Father in heaven, I pray that each of us would be able to have that kind of unshakable resilience that comes from placing our identity in you, from caring what you think of us, not caring just what other people think or what we alone think. Help us to receive that new name. We thank you that we, because of your love demonstrated for us on the cross, can step into that new identity to be in Christ to be seen as righteous as Christ. Father, help us um, by your spirit to give you our personality, all the roles that we play, our gender, um, all the different dynamics that are in play in our identity. Help us to offer that to you. Would you make us truly come alive and be more fully ourselves by the power of your spirit? In your name we pray. Amen.